This episode of the MedBullet Step 1 podcast will go over the topic of Staphylococcus aureus from the microbiology section on MedBullets.com. Let's start this episode with a clinical snapshot. A 23-year-old woman presents to the emergency department with fever, chills, and watery diarrhea. Her symptoms began approximately one day after menstruation began. Her temperature is 102 degrees Fahrenheit or 38.9 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 75 over 50 millimeters of mercury. Pulse is 125 per minute and respirations are 20 per minute. Physical examination is notable for a diffuse erythematous rash and desquamation of the palms and soles. So of course the patient in the clinical snapshot has toxic shock syndrome. So let's start off with an introduction about Staphylococcus aureus. The classification of Staphylococcus aureus is a gram-positive cocci in clusters. Again, the classification of Staphylococcus aureus is gram-positive cocci in clusters. As far as the microbiology, let's go over the specific properties of Staphylococcus aureus. They are facultative anaerobes, they are catalase positive, coagulase positive, beta hemolytic, they appear gold in sheep blood agar, they have protein A, they have hemolysins, leukocytins, penicillinase, and have specific toxins. So as far as being catalase positive, this means it neutralizes its own hydrogen peroxide, which results in the host phagocyte's inability to produce reactive oxygen species to combat infection, especially in patients with chronic granulomatous disease. Coagulase positive refers to coagulase which activates prothrombin, leading to clotting. This leads to fibrin formation around this organism. This differentiates Staphylococcus aureus from Staphylococcus epidermidis and Staphylococcus saprophyticus. Beta-hemolytic refers to complete hemolysis of red blood cells on an agar plate. Again, remember Staphylococcus aureus appears gold in sheep blood agar. Protein A binds to the FC region of the IgG antibody, and this prevents opsonization and phagocytosis. Hemolysins damages red blood cells, platelets, neutrophils, and macrophages. Leukocytins damages white blood cells. Penicillinase is a secreted form of beta-lactamase, which makes Staphylococcus aureus resistant to penicillins. Finally, let's talk about some specific toxins exhibited by Staphylococcus aureus. They have an exfoliative toxin, heat-stable enterotoxin, and toxic shock syndrome toxin. So the exfoliative toxin causes skin sloughing as seen in staphylococcal scalded skin syndrome. Heat-stable enterotoxin leads to food poisoning. And toxic shock syndrome toxin leads to staphylococcal toxic shock syndrome. Now let's talk about specific staphylococcus aureus-associated diseases. So starting with toxic shock syndrome, the clinical presentation involves symptoms of nausea and vomiting, as well as watery diarrhea. Physical exam may reveal fever, diffuse erythematous rash, palm and sole desquamation, and hypotension. Toxic shock syndrome can be caused by leaving tampons in place for a long period of time. This stimulates toxic shock syndrome toxin 1 release, penetrating the vaginal mucosa, and cross-linking the beta region of the T-cell receptor to MHC class 2. This leads to an overwhelming release of IL-1 and IL-2, interferon gamma, and TNF-alpha. The treatment is source control, meaning removing the tampon or surgical suture that enabled the production of toxic shock syndrome toxin 1. As far as antibiotics, the choice depends on drug sensitivity testing. 
This will not cure the disease, but may help as it can eliminate toxic shock syndrome toxin 1 producing staph aureus. Moving on to staphylococcal skin syndrome, physical exam may reveal a fever and erythematous rash with skin sloughing. Keep in mind that exfoliative toxin destroys keratinocyte attachments to the stratum granulosum. This is typically seen in newborns, children, and adults with renal insufficiency. Again, exfoliative toxin destroys keratinocyte attachments to the stratum granulosum, and this is typically seen in newborns, children, and adults with renal insufficiency. Another Staphylococcus aureus-associated disease is gastroenteritis. Symptoms can involve nausea, vomiting, and or abdominal pain. Physical exam may reveal watery diarrhea. Remember that staphylococci can produce exotoxin as it grows in food. So ingested preformed toxin causes intestinal peristalsis, resulting in nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, and or watery diarrhea. Pneumonia is another potential Staphylococcus aureus-associated disease, and physical exam may reveal fevers and chills. This is typically seen in superinfection after an influenza upper respiratory infection, and this may result in a lobar consolidation and lung parenchymal cavitations. Another Staph aureus-associated disease is osteomyelitis, and physical exam may reveal fever, as well as warm and swollen tissue over bone. Remember that Staphylococcus aureus spreads to the bone hematogenously and is the most common cause of osteomyelitis overall. Again, Staphylococcus aureus spreads to the bone hematogenously and is the most common cause of osteomyelitis overall. Acute endocarditis is another Staph aureus-associated disease, and the clinical presentation involves symptoms of chills and myalgias, and physical exam may reveal fever. Remember, there is rapid vegetation growth on the heart valve, which can cause valvular destruction, embolism to the brain leading to stroke with left heart valvular involvement, and potentially embolism to the lung with right heart valvular involvement, which is more common in intravenous drug users. So again, there is rapid vegetation growth on the heart valve, which can cause valvular destruction, embolism to the brain leading to stroke with left heart valvular involvement, and potentially embolism to the lung with right heart valvular involvement, which is more common in intravenous drug users. Septic arthritis is another potential Staph aureus-associated disease, and symptoms typically include joint pain. Physical exam may reveal an inflamed joint with decreased range of motion. Remember that septic arthritis can be caused by Staph aureus invasion into the synovial membrane. Joint aspiration can demonstrate yellow and turbid synovial fluid, prominent amounts of neutrophils, which is defined as greater than 100,000 CFU per milliliter, and a positive gram stain, which will reveal gram-positive cocci in clusters. So again, joint aspiration can demonstrate yellow and turbid synovial fluid, prominent amounts of neutrophils defined as greater than 100,000 CFU per milliliter, and a positive gram stain, which will reveal gram-positive cocci in clusters. Finally, certain skin infections can be Staph aureus-associated diseases. For example, impetigo on physical exam will manifest with small vesicles or pustules that crossed over into honey-colored lesions. This typically appear in the face and especially around the mouth. Cellulitis can present with fever. The affected area is erythematous, warm, and tender to palpation. Other skin infections can include a local abscess, which will manifest with pus collection, furuncles, which is an infection of a hair follicle, and carbuncles, which is a cluster of furuncles. Now let's talk about methicillin-resistant Staph aureus or MRSA. So most Staphylococci are penicillin-resistant due to their penicillinase, 
To combat this, a number of penicillinase-resistant penicillins were developed, for example, methicillin and nafcillin. MRSA is a strain of Staphylococcus aureus that has acquired resistance against penicillinase-resistant penicillins, thus being methicillin-resistant. This is due to an altered penicillin-binding protein. As far as the epidemiology, the incidence of MRSA typically appears in the hospital setting. As far as the microbiology, transmission can be via healthcare workers. As far as medical treatment, vancomycin is indicated as the drug of choice for MRSA. Linazolid can be used to treat vancomycin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, or VERSA. So as far as treatment overall for Staphylococcus aureus, medical treatment includes penicillinase-resistant penicillins, which is indicated as the drug of choice for organisms sensitive to these drugs. These medications include nafcillin, oxacillin, and dicloxacillin. Vancomycin, as we mentioned, is indicated for MRSA, and linazolid, as we mentioned, is indicated for VERSA. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A 24-year-old man is brought to the emergency department for shortness of breath and chest pain. His symptoms started two days ago without any clear precipitating factor and have progressively worsened. He reports some subjective fevers, chills, and diaphoresis today, but denies any recent sick contacts, rhinorrhea, cough, sore throat, abdominal pain, or diarrhea. He just returned from a business trip from South Korea two days ago. Prior to this, he also had a root canal for a badly decayed molar tooth. Family history and past medical history were non-contributory. He is a regular IV drug user, and his last use was three days ago. A physical examination demonstrates a patient in acute distress with rigors. The chest pain is not reproducible with palpation, S1-S2 heart sounds are present without any murmurs or gallops. There are faint inspiratory and expiratory wheezes bilaterally, but the physical examination is otherwise unremarkable. What is the most likely cause of this patient's condition? And the choices are 1. Inflammation of the pericardium, 2. Pulmonary embolism, 3. Regurgitation of gastric contents, 4. Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia, and 5. Streptococcus viridans bacteremia. The correct answer to this question is for Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia. So if you have good situational awareness and know that we're going over questions about Staphylococcus aureus, you should have gotten this question correct. But to quickly review, this patient in the question stem has acute infective endocarditis secondary to Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia as demonstrated by his toxic state, for example, rigors and distress, chest pain and dyspnea in the setting of regular IV drug use. To quickly review, infective endocarditis refers to the infection of the endocardial surface of the heart, which usually involves the heart valves. Risk factors include previous cardiac conditions, for example, congenital heart disease, IV drug use, indwelling IV catheter, immunosuppression, or a recent dental or surgical procedure. Infective endocarditis can present as acute disease with rapidly progressive infection or as subacute or chronic disease with more indolent progression for example, low-grade fever and nonspecific symptoms. Patients can present with fever, chest pain, pulmonary and neurologic symptoms, secondary to septic emboli, and immunologic reactions, for example, Janeway lesions. Common organisms include Staphylococcus aureus, especially in IV drug users, Streptococcus viridans, and Streptococcus bovis. Diagnosis is made on the Duke criteria and often involve positive imaging findings on echocardiogram and positive blood cultures. 
Management includes antibiotic treatment and possible surgical interventions if complications are present. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, inflammation of the pericardium describes pericarditis, which may present with pleuritic chest pain and shortness of breath, fever, or palpitations. The most common cause of pericarditis involves a prior viral infection, often upper respiratory. This patient denies any symptoms of upper respiratory infection, and his presentation is more in line with acute infective endocarditis. Answer 2, pulmonary embolism, has a varied presentation and may range from asymptomatic to dyspnea, chest pain, and acute respiratory failure. Although this patient has risk factors for pulmonary embolism, given his recent travel, his clinical presentation of rigors, diaphoresis, and fevers are more suggestive of acute infective endocarditis. Answer 3, regurgitation of gastric contents describes gastric reflux, which can present with burning chest pain, often after oral ingestion. This patient's presentation and physical examination findings are more suggestive of infective endocarditis. Finally, answer 5, streptococcus viridans bacteremia is associated with subacute infective endocarditis, which presents with a more indolent course, for example, low-grade fevers and nonspecific symptoms. This patient's acute onset of symptoms and toxic appearance are more suggestive of acute endocarditis, which is associated with Staphylococcus aureus. So to leave you with the bullet summary, Staphylococcus aureus is the most common organism associated with infective endocarditis and usually presents acutely with a toxic appearance, for example, hemodynamic instability, respiratory distress, or rigors. Moving on to the next question. A 65-year-old man presents to the emergency department with a complaint of intense pain in his right foot for the past month along with fevers and chills. He denies any traumatic injury to his foot in recent memory. He has a medical history of poorly controlled type 2 diabetes and is a former smoker with extensive peripheral vascular disease. On physical exam, the area of his right foot around the hallux is swollen, erythematous, tender to light palpation, and reveals exposed bone. Labs are notable for elevated C-reactive protein and erythrocyte sedimentation rate. The physician obtains a biopsy for culture. What is the most likely causative organism for this patient's condition? And the choices are 1. Mycobacterium tuberculosis 2. Neisseria gonorrhea 3. Pasturella multicida 4. Pseudomonas aeruginosa and 5. Staphylococcus aureus The correct answer to this question is 5, Staphylococcus aureus. So once again, if you have good situational awareness and know that we're going over questions about Staph aureus, you should have gotten this question correct. But to quickly review, the patient's presentation in the question stem of swelling, erythema, pain, and exposed bone in the affected site in the setting of a medical history that includes diabetes and peripheral vascular disease is highly suggestive of osteomyelitis, which is most commonly caused by Staphylococcus aureus. To quickly review, osteomyelitis is inflammation of the bone and bone marrow that is most commonly secondary to infection. Epidemiological risk factors include poorly controlled diabetes, peripheral vascular disease, open fractures, intravenous drug use, and surgery. While infection can be due to various bacteria, fungi, and mycobacteria, the most common cause overall is Staphylococcus aureus. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, Answer 1, mycobacterium tuberculosis is a less common cause of osteomyelitis as in the case of vertebral involvement, for example in the setting of Potts disease. This patient does not have symptoms or a history suggestive of tuberculosis. Answer 2, Neisseria gonorrhea is a less common cause of osteomyelitis. A risk factor for osteomyelitis caused by Neisseria gonorrhea is sexual activity. 
Answer 3, Pasturella multicida is a less common cause of osteomyelitis. A risk factor for osteomyelitis caused by Pasturella multicida is cat and dog bites. Answer 4, Pseudomonas aeruginosa is a less common cause of osteomyelitis. A risk factor for osteomyelitis caused by Pseudomonas aeruginosa is intravenous drug abuse. So to leave you with a bullet summary, Staphylococcus aureus is the most common cause of osteomyelitis. And moving on to the final question, a 30-year-old man returns to the hospital three weeks after open reduction and internal fixation of left tibia and fibula fractures from a motor vehicle accident. The patient complains that his surgical site has been draining pus for a few days, and his visiting nurse told him to go to the emergency room after he had a fever this morning. On exam, his temperature is 103 degrees Fahrenheit, 39.4 degrees Celsius, blood pressure is 85 over 50 millimeters of mercury, pulse is 115 per minute, and respirations are 14 per minute. The ED physician further documents that the patient is also starting to develop a diffuse macular rash. The patient has started on broad-spectrum antibiotics, and gram stain demonstrates purple cocci in clusters. Which of the following toxins is likely to be the cause of the patient's condition? And the choices are 1, alpha toxin, 2, endotoxin, 3, exfoliative toxin, 4, pyogenic exotoxin A, and 5, toxic shock syndrome toxin 1. The correct answer to this question is 5, toxic shock syndrome toxin 1. So this patient has classic symptoms of toxic shock syndrome, including hypotension and rash. The toxin responsible for toxic shock syndrome is toxic shock syndrome toxin 1, or TSST1. While toxic shock syndrome is frequently associated with tampon use and nasal packing, it is also associated with surgical site infections, burns, and childbirth. This syndrome is due to the production of TSST1 by Staphylococcus aureus. TSST1 is a superantigen that results in polyclonal T-cell activation. This produces inflammatory symptoms such as fever, rash, shock, and end-organ failure. The rash desquamates in the recovery period. So to quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, alpha toxin is produced by Clostridium perfringens, which causes gas gangrene due to a phospholipase that destroys cell membranes. Answer 2, endotoxin, refers to a component of the outer membrane of gram-negative bacteria. Staph aureus is a gram-positive bacteria. Answer 3, exfoliative toxin, is produced by Staphylococcus aureus, but is associated with scalded skin syndrome. Finally, answer 4, Streptococcus pyogenes produces pyogenic exotoxin A, which causes a toxic shock-like syndrome associated with a painful skin infection. So to leave you with the bullet summary, rash, fever, and hypotension after a surgical site infection are consistent with toxic shock syndrome due to toxic shock syndrome toxin 1, or TSST1. That's all for this review about Staphylococcus aureus. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 1 podcast, a daily audio review session by MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on MedBullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the MedBullets website or app while going through the topic. If you're enjoying the MedBullets Step 1 podcast so far, please consider leaving us a 5-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.